Dear gracious Lord, thank you so much for your infinite kindness towards us, that we can be here tonight to be under the under your word, praying that your Holy Spirit would be working in each one of us, and that the message of the truth of the gospel and the forgiveness that we have in Christ, and the life that we need to live in this forgiveness in Christ would really be worked in our hearts and our minds. Um, and really play out in our lives for your glory. Please bless this time as we look into your word, as we behold the glory of Christ, and as we strive, O Lord, with one another to glorify you in this life of forgiveness we have in him. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so maybe some of you have heard of the name Luis Zamperini. Anybody heard of him? At least the name, you saw his name on the freeway, right? So there is a small little airport in Torrance uh, named after Luis Zamperini. And he was an Italian descendant. His parents came from Italy. He was born in the East Coast. But as a young boy, he came over here into Torrance in 1920, which when I wrote that down, then I realized, man, that was like 100 years ago. <laughs> so he moved to Torrance in 1920. He grew up as a juvenile, getting himself into all kinds of trouble because he grew up speaking Italian, and when he went to school, nobody else spoke Italian, so everybody was making fun of him and laughing at him and all that. So he got in all kinds of trouble. But as he grew up, his older brother um, you know, kind of took him under his wing, so to speak, and got him into sports. So he started doing track and field, uh, doing really excellent job. Eventually, he got to participate in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. He didn't do very well, even though he had a lot of promise. But his hopes then were set to be an, uh, an Olympic medal winner in the 1940 Olympics in Tokyo. But those hopes were dashed because Japan had invaded Manchuria and China at that time. And so the Olympics were canceled. So he did not participate because there were no Olympics. So after that, he had to go and he joined the U.S. military. He was in the U.S. Army Air Force. And he had been on a number of missions um, in the B-52, whatever they're called, bombers. Um, <clears throat> and really surviving a lot of these missions that he was on. And they had so much success that he just always considered it luck that they were successful in their missions. They never got shot down. And he got the name Lucky Louie, because he always attributed his survival to, to, to luck. But then, in May of 1943, he was on a rescue mission, but he was on one of the unlucky planes that had tons of mechanical failures. And that plane eventually crashed in the ocean. And there was 11 other soldiers that were on that plane with him, but only three of them survived. And later on, as they were on, the, on the, um, the life rafts in the ocean, just floating around, one of them also died, and they had to, you know, just lay his body into the ocean. But he was stranded out there on the ocean for 47 days. You know, they just had a tiny little bit of food, tiny little bit of water whenever it rained. When the sun came out and was just blasting on them all day, they were, you know, just under an immense heat. And then at nighttime, it was freezing cold, and they had no cover. They're just out there floating in the ocean for 47 days. 
Now this man, you know, he was an Olympian, right? He was strong, he was fit. But Zamperini, when he crash landed, was 165 pounds. 47 days later, when they got him, he was only 67 pounds. And this is a five foot nine dude. I'm five three. I won't tell you my weight. So, um, <laughs> but he was 67 pounds when they rescued him. He could barely get off of the raft when they rescued him, but he was rescued by the Japanese. So while he was on that raft, though, and struggling to survive, he, he wasn't a religious man, but he prayed, Our Father in heaven, we are ignorant of your ways, and we are here by no choice of our own and are completely helpless. Have mercy on us. Answer my prayers now, and I will promise that if I get home, I'll seek you and serve you for the rest of my life. So he was rescued. He was taken into this labor camp and really beaten and just fed little handfuls of rice and forced to work all day long and treated miserably for two and a half years. The soldiers that were watching over them, they were absolutely brutal. I mean, they even injected him with dengue fever just to see what would happen. I mean, this guy's 67 pounds, right? And they, you know, are giving him these diseases to treat him like a guinea pig. But the thing was that these guys actually got entertainment. They were satisfied in their crazy minds by beating Zamperini and these other prisoners. Sadly, of course, many of these prisoners actually died. But Zamperini somehow survived. And he came back from the war. He was rescued once the war was over. He got married, and he forgot about God. But however, he had tons of nightmares. This time in Japan as a prisoner of war would torture him for a long time. Of course, he you know, was suffering through all this pressure and these nasty nightmares from the guys that would beat him, and he was a prisoner. And then he turned to alcohol, and he became a drunk. He became an abuser at home. But eventually, by God's grace, he came to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Eventually, through having the God's word work in his heart, work in his mind, just eating him inside, he, he eventually gave in and, and became a believer in Jesus Christ. And his sins were forgiven. Now that in and of itself is an amazing story, but it, it, gets, it gets better. He keeps going. When he returned to the U.S. as a war hero, and he was, everybody thought he was dead. When they discovered he was still alive, he was kind of a famous character. And so the Time magazine interviewed him, and during that interview, he said to the person that, I would rather be dead than to return to that country, Japan. But in 1950, he was compelled, because now he was a new creation in Christ. He had been forgiven. He had been forgiven in Christ Jesus. And so he felt compelled to return to Japan, to look at those soldiers in the eyes, the very ones that had beaten him, and to offer them the forgiveness of Christ, and to extend to them his own forgiveness. So he was able to fly back to Japan. He was taken to a prison, 850 Japanese soldiers that were now there in prison because they had committed heinous crimes. 
He shared his testimony with them. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. And even later, he was taken to a smaller room with the very people that had beat him. And he was able to embrace them. They were so surprised by the affection that he had for them. Even though they know that they had beaten him to a pulp and had treated him like an animal. But this man, Zamperini, now loved them. And again, he shared the gospel of Christ with them. And of course, many of them were confused. They had no idea what in the world Zamperini was talking about. Because they'd never seen such a love, such a forgiveness from a man whom they had treated so poorly. But some of these men actually came to believe in Jesus Christ. And some of them, of course, rejected. But to see that this man, Zamperini, a new creature in Christ, to go and share the gospel, to give his forgiveness to these men, is an amazing testimony of the power of Christ, the power of gospel, the forgiveness that we can have in him to also extend that forgiveness to others. That's a story that we're going to look at some more tonight in Matthew 18, a similar story, but with different details. We're going to see how Jesus relates this story to us so that we know and we remember the forgiveness that we've been extended to ourselves by Christ and how we need to extend that forgiveness to others. We're going to see that Jesus is exhorting us to have a heart of forgiveness because God has forgiven us of much more than we'll ever know. So turn to Matthew 18. We're going to read 20, verses 21 to 35. Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. And just before this, Jesus had given them other instructions of how to deal with sin in the church. And then Peter comes and asks a question. And starting in verse 21, he says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one who... One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of, the ser of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive 
your brother from your heart. So again, I want you to see the key idea is that you need to have a heart of forgiveness because God has forgiven you much more than you'll ever know. So as we begin to look at this passage, we see that Peter, Peter begins asking the Lord Jesus this interesting question. Remember in the previous passage, the one right before this, Jesus teaches his disciples how we should pursue someone in the church who sins against us for the sake of reconciliation and restoration of that relationship. But in response, Peter asks a somewhat natural question for sinners like us. and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? But you might be wondering, why, Peter, why are you asking this? Why seven times? Well, at that time, the rabbis used to teach the, the people in that community that they ought to forgive somebody three times. The forgiveness should only be extended to them three times. And after that, no more. No more forgiveness should be extended. So Peter here seems to be generous and now asking, should I forgive them seven times? That's pretty good, right? We're only taught to forgive three times, but should I forgive them as many as seven? But Jesus responds in such a way, and he does this so often that would just be so mind-blowing, and really, it's really quite shocking. Right? Jesus says, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. And just imagine, the rabbis are teaching the people that they need to forgive three times. Peter says, should we forgive as much as seven? And Jesus responds, no, you're not even close. Right? In essence, Jesus is saying that you need to forgive infinitely. You need to forgive so often that you really shouldn't even be keeping count. You could even wonder, if you're keeping count about how many times you've forgiven someone, are you actually truly forgiving that person, right? But I love the way Jesus responds. He doesn't even flinch at the question, right? The answer to Peter's question is so clear and so obvious. Peter, you just need to forgive. It doesn't matter how many times someone sins against you. You just need to forgive. You need to have a heart of forgiveness. But then Jesus goes on to explain more about this heart of forgiveness, right? And, and honestly, it's times like this in the Word of God that I'm so thankful for the kindness that God expresses to us in His Word. Because Jesus could have said, look, you just need to forgive and move on, right? He could have just said that and gone on to some other topic. But He doesn't, right? He takes the time to sit and it gives us the story that really illustrates the heart of God to forgive and to show us why we need to have a forgiving heart like God. So that brings us into our second portion here. That we see God's compassionate forgiveness in verses 23 to 27. God's compassionate forgiveness. So look again at verse 23. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. And this part of the story, Jesus is giving us this illustration of what God's forgiveness is really like, so that we can grasp just how much God has forgiven us. 
Right? He begins by describing this servant that owes the king this astronomical amount of money. Right? The servant owes the king 10,000 talents. And if you look in the footnotes in your Bible, depending what version you have, it might say that a talent is roughly equivalent to 15 years, uh, sorry, 15 years of wages for a labor, or 20 years, depends what translation you're looking at. But a talent would be about 15 years of wages for a laborer. So just to give you an idea what that might be like in today's terms, um, I did a little bit of math, which for me is kind of dangerous. So I, I, I grabbed a calculator, and then I did some math. And because I don't trust myself with a calculator either, I asked my wife to double check my work. So for someone that makes a minimum wage, this would be on the order of about $4.3 billion. That's billion with a B. Cuatro punto tres billones, or mil millones, for you Spanish speakers. I know you're there. I know you. I see you. Somebody's got to be here. <laughs> so if you're someone who makes minimum wage, and somebody comes and tells you, look, you owe this person $4.3 billion, you'd just laugh, because that's no way. That's never going to happen. Impossible. I'm never paying that back on minimum wage. There's no way you could ever pay that back. And that's really the point of this story of this man that owes 10,000 talents to the king. At that time, with this description, that number would have been like saying, yeah, he owes you a gajillion dollars. I mean, it's, it's just astronomical. But it says here that in verse 25, that his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payments to be made. And that might sound weird to us today, but at that time, that was a pretty common practice. If somebody owed an amount of debt that couldn't be repaid, they'd just be sold into slavery. But even with that, that wouldn't really cover what this man owed, because if you remember, another way to look at this is 10,000 talents, all right? 15 years of wages for a laborer. That's like saying, you owe me 150,000 years of labor, right? You need to go work for 150,000 years before you would pay me back. That's equivalent to what this guy is saying, how much he owes. So even if he wanted to pay back in labor, which would be impossible, I mean, he'd have to, in, in really um, paying him back with his wife and the labor of his children and all that, he'd need to have like 3,000 kids. And nobody has 3,000 kids. It ain't happening, right? This guy is not going to be able to pay the king back. But either way, the king orders him to be sold off. But how does the servant respond, right? It says in verse 26, So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. He's begging for mercy. Have patience with me. Pleading with the king for the time that he could repay the king, even though we already know it was impossible. But in verse 27, he says, Out of pity, or out of compassion for the servant. The master released him and forgave him the debt. The king released this servant from the threat of being sold into slavery. And then he canceled that debt that the servant owed. This is really quite breathtaking. I mean, this is truly an unimaginable amount of debt. And just like that, the king forgives him. And it's because this king has compassion on this servant. 
because of his compassion, he wipes away the staggering debt and says, you don't owe me anything anymore. I mean, can you imagine that? You put yourself in this guy's shoes for a moment. You owe somebody this crazy amount of debt, and he's come to collect. And you already had the guilt and the weight and the pressure on your shoulders pressing in on you every day because you know that sooner or later this man is going to come and collect the money that you owe him. And you think about the consequences because you can't pay. You'll be kicked out of school. They'll come and they'll take your phone. They'll take your computer. They'll take your car. They'll take all of your possessions. You'll lose your home. you lose your family. They'll take away everything that you value the most. Whatever little money that you make is swiftly taken away to pay this man back, which again is impossible. You have no hope in ever getting out of that situation. There is no hope for that situation. So you do the only thing that you can do. And you plead. You beg for mercy, for a little more time so that you might be able to pay something. But then that person just tells you, look, I forgive you. Everything. Everything that you owe, I forgive you. And you would be astounded. You would be in unbelief that this guy is forgiving you this debt. And you would get up off of your knees from pleading and rejoice with thanksgiving, jumping up and down, but only to fall right back down on your knees to give him thanks. Because your heart is filled with gratitude at that point. And that's just the earthly example, right, of what we have to give us this idea of the debt that we've owed to God as sinful human beings and His compassionate heart towards us, the forgiveness that He extends to us as believers. So what does that look like in spiritual terms or in terms of our actual relationship with God? All right, let's think about this, all right? The greatest commandment in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven: You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now well, let's consider that. Let's be honest with ourselves. Have you, have I ever done that in real life? I mean, have you ever loved the Lord your God with all of your being for more than even one instant? Now, it's possible. Perhaps maybe we have done that for an instant in our lives. But, but honestly, that's not the norm for us. We don't live in that space of loving the Lord your God with all your whole being all the time. Right? We definitely don't do that. We're normally just consumed with our own desires, our own pride, our own selfishness, our own anxieties, our own worries. And in a sense, it's almost as if we're constantly sinning against God because we're constantly not loving Him with all of our being. And so our sins keep piling up continuously against an infinite and holy God. It's like we have this infinite sin against an infinite, holy, and righteous God, which is like saying we have an infinite debt owed to God. And we can never repay Him for this. We can never make reparations to Him. We can never restore our relationship with Him on our own merit. It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And from the moment that Jesus began preaching in His ministry, He called on us to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repent from our sins and believe the gospel. 
And for those of us who have heard Jesus' call to repent and believe and acted upon that, we've pleaded with God for forgiveness, and our sins indeed have been forgiven by God's compassion, by, God, by Jesus Christ's work on the cross, we are forgiven in Him. And our infinite death, excuse me, debt of sin has been forgiven. It's all been canceled out. It's been wiped away. All of our sins, our past sins, our present sins, our future sins, all of them wiped away by the Lord Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. So if you will, with me, I, I really want you to look at this Psalm 103. But turn over to Psalm 103, because I think this gives us some words to help us really um, give language to our thanksgiving, to our, to our praise to God, and how the work that He's done in forgiving us, what it really amounts to. So Psalm 103, we're not going to read all of it, but just a portion. Psalm 103, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, and who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So I love that psalm because it really helps us understand just how loving and compassionate and forgiving God really is. Even though our sins against God are sky high, his love is greater than our sin. And even though we're so undeserving and our sins could stretch as far as the eye could see, he removes our sins far from us as far as the east is from the west, infinitely apart. And so we're blessed. We bless the Lord along with this psalmist because if we are in Christ, our sins are forgiven. So this psalm and this story in Matthew 18, they really help us to understand the compassionate and forgiving heart of God towards us so that we can have a grasp of how much God has forgiven us. Let's continue in this story and see what happens with this servant who's been forgiven so much. Look at the failure of this servant to forgive in verses 28 through 30. The failure to forgive. It says in verse 28, But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Having pati- Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, this scene is almost unreal. It's just as astounding as the amount of debt that was forgiven the servant. His lack of forgiveness towards his fellow servant is almost equally astounding. 
Well, let's look a little closer. This man goes out. He comes across his fellow servant who owes him 100 denarii. And again, whatever that is, right? But you look in your Bible, in the footnote, it says, Denarii was a day's wage for labor. But what he does is unthinkable. He gets a hold of him. He begins choking him, demanding him that the debt be paid back to him. But you're thinking what everybody else is thinking, right? Dude, what's wrong with you? You were just forgiven an insane amount of money. You can at least be patient with this guy. He owes you money, sure, but maybe you could even forgive him. Just like you were forgiven. Easy peasy, right? Now let's consider this. How much is a hundred denarii, right? As we read this carefully, we're tempted to just overlook this detail, but there's something significant here. Again, assuming a minimum wage, a hundred days worth of wages, that would come out to be about $12,000. Okay? $12,000. Of course, this is nothing compared to the 10,000 talents. But the point is, is that that's not insignificant either, right? When's the last time that you forgave someone for $12,000? Right? I mean, it's not an easy chunk of money. And we just moved down to Lamita two weeks ago. And I've been trying to get in touch with this friend of mine. Because he's moving into our old place. And I text him. And I wait. And I text him again. He never replies. And I confess to you tonight that... I'm getting bent out of shape because of this guy. He doesn't even want to pay me back a few characters and an emoji or something in a text. And I'm getting all worked up with this. But this guy, we might ask, what's wrong with you? You were just forgiven 10,000 talents, right? But, but right, it, the $12,000, that's not easy either, <laughs> right? We, we get so worked up over trivial issues but let's admit it. And we'd probably get worked up like this guy, right? If, if somebody owed us 100 denarii, somebody owed you $12,000, and you'd probably get a little bit worked up too. So while we're on the outside looking on the story, it's easy to say, man, why isn't this guy just forgiven? Just forgive him the 100 denarii, right? But when it's you, when you're the one that's owed $12,000, or in other words, when you're the one who's been sinned against seriously, right? it's not that easy to just straight up forgive the person. We struggle with that, right? It can be hard to forgive, especially when we feel extremely hurt, or we've been lied to, or we've been deceived, or even betrayed by somebody. And forgiveness is not easy. And sometimes we react like this guy. Right? We react like this guy in the story. We demand recompense. We demand from the one who sinned against us to pay us back in some way for the wrong that he's done us. But let's see what happens next. This man says in verse 29, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He's on his knees, he's pleading, he says, have patience with me, and I will pay you. 
Now at that moment, at that very instant, this man should have frozen in his tracks. He should have stopped cold and had one of those flashback movie experiences. All right, what the debtor did and what the debtor said should have triggered this man's heart and triggered his mind about the forgiveness that he received from the king, falling down on his knees, pleading, and literally almost the exact same words are used, have patience with me and I will pay you. Now all of that should have taken the man back to that same instant when the king did the same thing, when he, sorry, when he was pleading before the king the exact same thing in the exact same way. And he should have remembered all the debt that he owed the king and how the king had compassion on him and released him and forgave him that debt. Now, brother and sister, I want you to think back on that instant. Do you ever think back on that moment when God forgave you for all of your sins? I know we all have different life experiences. Not everyone knows the exact moment when you were saved. I don't know exactly when I was saved. But the reality, though, of being forgiven from all of our sins is the same for all of us. Do you think back on how the Lord just lifted off all that weight and burden that you were carrying because of your sin and forgave it all? All the guilt and all that shame just washed away? Did you ever look back in awe and amazement of just how much God has forgiven you? Uh, For me, personally, I was saved relatively late, you know, in life-ish. Around 27. It's not so late, but it's late. And I've done a lot of dumb things in my life. A lot of sinful things. But there's a lot of times when I'm driving down the street or I'm just seeing some video somewhere or something and and something triggers me. And it takes me back to my life before Christ. And I think about I think about it for a while and, and just remember a lot of my sinful actions, my sinful thoughts, my sinful desires. But eventually I get to that point. And I remember the reality that God has forgiven me of all of my sin, all of my debt, all of my guilt, atoned for by Christ, canceled by the work of Jesus Christ. All of my debt canceled because of the forgiveness extended to me by God. And I thank God for that. I praise Him for that. But our meditation on God's forgiveness should also cause us to do more. Right? It should compel us to do more than just give thanks to God. So we're also called to be like Christ and be conformed into His image. We're also um, called to, to live for Him, to live like Him. And the incredible amount of forgiveness that we have received from God should lead us also to be forgiving towards others. Because God has forgiven us much more than we'll ever know or realize. We need to have a forgiving heart towards others. Unfortunately, the man in this story has either forgotten this lesson or he hasn't really learned it yet. This says in verse 30 that he refused to extend 
even patience toward the other man, and he put him in prison until he should repay the debt. That's a far cry from the compassionate and forgiving attitude that the king showed towards this man just a few verses ago. Right, and that brings us to the next point, the logic of forgiveness. The logic of forgiveness. Verse 31 to 33. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And we don't need to dwell here too long. It's the logic of forgiveness that we've been looking at throughout the whole story and that Jesus has been making to us throughout the story. But the people were appalled, right, at the lack of forgiveness from this man who was forgiven the 10,000 talents. And the king calls him out on it and makes it clear to him, right? You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servants as I had mercy on you? So clearly God's expectation is that we be forgiving towards others just as we've been forgiven by God. Right, and later on in the epistles, Paul gives us essentially the same exhortations. Right, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ, in Christ forgave you. And in Colossians 3, 12 and 13, he says to you similarly, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So all of this should serve as a reminder of God's call on our lives. To be true disciples of Christ and to follow Him is very practical. It's really practical and tangible, right? We sin against God and we sin against others every single day. We're also sinned against by others' people every single day. But do you have that heart of forgiveness towards others? Like, do you hold grudges against people? Do you refuse to forgive them? Again, I know it's not always easy. And just like we looked at with the hundred denarii, it, it can be costly at times to forgive people. But the simple fact of the matter is that when we forgive others, we are being like Christ. And when we refuse to forgive others, quite simply, we're not being like Christ. And again, look, I know there's all kinds of terrible sins that people go through. And sadly, in this world, there's all kinds of terrible sins that either we're exposed to or we suffer under. Um, maybe we've done or maybe other people have done to us. Okay? But I'm not making light of that. Okay? I know there are really quite terrible sins. But the hard reality, though, is that there is no sin against us that God has not experienced or forgiven in other people. Okay, There's no sin against us that God hasn't experienced himself or forgiven in other people. And if God can forgive those sins, who are we 
that we can't forgive. It's hard for me, honestly, even to say that. Because, again, I know there's certain sins that maybe some of you in this room have even suffered under, and it's extremely painful. But by the grace of God, in His strength, in His power, and we have to strive to have that forgiving attitude, just like we see the compassion and the forgiveness in Christ. And that leads us to our last point, the, dis- the discipline of forgiveness. The discipline of forgiveness in verse 34 and 35. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers. Or, if you read the footnotes, the torturers. Until he should pay all his debt, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now these verses can be kind of tricky. And there's several interpretations that could explain them. I'm going to cover them, two of them really quickly, but I don't want us to get bogged down in this. Um, I don't want you to lose the sight that the main thrust, even behind verses 34 and 35, are to exhort us to have this heart of forgiveness. So the first interpretation that's possible is that this unforgiving servant really wasn't a true believer, right? His unforgiving heart is evidence that he wasn't a true believer. That's a viable option. There's multiple passages like the parable of the sower, the wheat and the tares, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 7, 21 to 23, right? When people say, Lord, Lord, right? And he says, get away from me, I never knew you. Right? So the fact, the possibility that this man wasn't a true believer, that's one possible interpretation. Um, and that he'll go into eternity and punished eternally. If you have questions about that, we have a message on that reality um, from several weeks ago. The second option, though, and I think personally this makes a little more sense to me, is that this guy, the one who was forgiven the 10,000 talents, was a true believer, but he's sinning because he has this unforgiving heart. And these verses 34 and 35 are really talking about that he's going to be disciplined under the hand of the Lord until he comes to the place where he can forgive someone. Okay? Now there's other passages, too, that, that give that type of uh, support, um, and I can talk to you later if you have more questions about that. Um, but just to highlight that, in Proverbs 3, verses 11 to 12, it says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. And Hebrews 12 co- or, uh, quotes that verse from Proverbs and gives a similar application. But I don't want you guys to get bogged down in that. At the end, the main thrust, again, of those verses in the whole passage is that as Christ followers, as gospel people, we need to have this forgiving heart. We need to have this forgiving attitude towards others. But as it says on the handout, this last point is the discipline of forgiveness. And by that, I I have a double meaning in there. So this is a twofer. The discipline of forgiveness. The first one, what we just said, that they might, this guy might be getting disciplined under God's hand so that he can come to a place to forgive his fellow servant. But the second one, 
what I want to share with you is that the discipline of forgiving others, right? How do we do that in life, right? How do we do that in our everyday life? What does forgiveness look like, right? Because life is messy, life is hard, and we do things and we say things that we ought not to do. We sin against others quite frequently, and obviously other people sin against us too. But as the story's been motivating us and pushing us, right, we need to be forgiving people. And so if someone sins against you, the question is, what kind of posture do you take towards that person? Do you just kind of shove them out of your life and say, I don't want to deal with that person anymore? Do you give them the cold shoulder? you just ignore the sin, but really you just let it turn into bitterness in your heart? Or do you actually go and demand them that they come to you and ask for forgiveness? Now, what kind of posture are you taking against people that sin against you? What do you do? What's the right thing to do? Every situation is unique, but generally, right, we should have this heart of forgiveness towards that person. And honestly, we need to have this heart of forgiveness towards them, even if they never bring the sin up or you never bring the sin issue up to them. The posture in your heart needs to be that of forgiveness towards them. Right? 1 Peter 4.8, he tells us, he tells us, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Right? Psalm 32 begins by saying, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And so a good practice for us is to try and forgive the other person without ever needing to bring up the sin issue with that person. That's a good place to start when someone sins against us. We want to have that type of mindset, that type of attitude of forgiveness towards them. And later you can go home and read this great story that I think is a good example of this because um, it, it just highlights this attitude of forgiveness. That's in 2 Samuel 16, so you can jot that down and check it out later. 2 Samuel 16. But in summary, right, David, uh, David's son, King David, his son Absalom is trying to take over the kingdom. King David starts fleeing the city. This man named Shimei starts running alongside of him on another hill off to the side. And he starts flinging rocks at King David, kicking up dust, and throwing all kinds of curses at him. And he calls him, you worthless fellow. But, I mean, it's the Bible. I can't say much worse things, right? So, but you can just imagine, right? If you were the king, you might be like, who is this guy? What does he think he's doing? Off with his head. No, I'm just kidding. You wouldn't say that. All right, but actually, some of King David's servants wanted to do that. They said... In verse 9, 2 Samuel 16, 9, it says, Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let, him go over, let me go over and take off his head. So <laughs> King David is getting pressure to just go kill this guy. But King David is gracious towards him. And actually he has quite a forgiving heart towards this guy, Shimei. And even forgives him for all this stuff later. Um... But there's also other examples, right? Like Jesus, when he was on the cross. What does he pray? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The first martyr, Stephen, in Acts 7, right? He's getting stoned to death. 
because he's witnessing for Christ. But before he dies, he prays, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. All right, so these are pretty amazing examples of this heart of forgiveness towards others. But sometimes, right, there's occasions when the right thing to do is actually move towards this person who sinned against you. And you need to have a talk with them. You need to have a discussion with them about their sin. And whether it's against you, whether it's a pattern of sin you see in their life, or the sin that they're engaged in is harmful to themselves or harmful to the church. Right? Those are some instances when you want to move towards that person. You want to go and talk to them in love and humility and with this heart of forgiveness and this attitude of restoration and reconciliation and all these things. You want to go and speak to them about this. All right? It has to be done in a spirit of humility with forgiveness and love. And with the goal being the reconciliation between people if it's a relationship that's broken. Or restoration in your own relationship with them. But always with the glory of Christ, right, being the goal. So in short, you need to try to forgive others. Forgive others as much as possible. Forgive them even when we don't need to go bring up the sin that they've done against us. Right? But, but if the situation calls for it, then you need to be willing in humility and love to go and speak to them about any particular sin. Again, with not saying I'm better than you, no, but with the hope of having restoration, having reconciliation, etc. And obviously with humility, right? Because like this passage has been showing us, we've all been forgiven in Christ. Because of that, we need to look for forgiveness in others. So, just as an encouragement, I want to close tonight with a really quick, um, just sharing about a situation with my dad when I was growing up. When I was growing up, he was um, a tyrant. He was, in my mind at that time, a jerk. And I actually hated him. And I'm pretty sure my sister hated him. He was an entrepreneur. And all he was about was about making money. And that was his goal in life, was to make money. And he had reasons for that, and you know, I can understand to some degree why he was like that. But he was a tyrant, and I hated him. I'm pretty sure my mom didn't get along with him either. But it came to a point in his life that he lost most of his money, his health was going down the drain, the whole family's going down the drain, but he came and he heard the gospel. And somehow, through a set of circumstances, he came to believe in Christ. And he was saved. And his sins were forgiven. And he was a changed man. And I remember one day, I was sitting in the passenger seat of the car, and he's in the back seat, and he starts telling me, hey, son, I know I've been a jerk your whole life. I know you probably hate me. I know I haven't been there for you, but I just want to ask, can you forgive me? And, you know, all this stuff is going through my mind. I'm not saved at that point, so not exactly the most godly thoughts going through my mind. But I felt in my heart just compelled to forgive my dad. And so I can't explain it. I don't know what was going on, but... I just told him, 
I forgive you. And I mean, he starts crying, tears coming down his face, and he just hugs me from behind, you know, behind the passenger seat, and just gives me this giant hug. And he's just weeping. Um, and he was able to come to that point because he was a forgiven man. And much later in life, you know, I got saved, and, you know, I think I've been able to ask him for forgiveness for various things in my life. Um, and now he's one of my best friends, and I get to enjoy that relationship with him. I get to enjoy that experience of forgiveness in Christ with him. And so the reason I'm telling you that is that, look, if you have difficulty forgiving other people, if you have difficulty in relationships with others, like the gospel is real, okay? The gospel works in your heart. The Word of God and the Spirit of God work in your heart and your mind, and they make you into a new creation. And the forgiveness that we have in Christ is the forgiveness that we can also experience with others and that we should be extending to others as much as possible. That God has forgiven us a pile of sin. We need to be forgiving towards others as well. Let's pray. Dear gracious Lord, you are indeed so kind, so merciful, so compassionate towards us. Lord, we know we're unworthy of your love. We know we're unworthy of your forgiveness. But Father, in your goodness and your kindness and your steadfast love towards us, you have forgiven us. You've given us your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to atone for our sins, that our relationship can be made anew with you. So, Father, we praise you, we worship you, we give you thanks, and we ask that you help us to strive in your strength to be forgiving people, that we might glorify Christ as we proclaim the gospel of your Son to others. And it's in Jesus' great name that we pray. Amen.